Our second lesson is from the Gospel of Luke, the sixth chapter. It's printed here for you uh, in your printed liturgy. This is uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, the Beatitudes. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you'll be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Open our ears, O God, that we would hear the gospel. By your spirit, give us eyes to see Jesus as Jesus reveals himself to us and not the Jesus of our warped imagination. And give us the grace to lean into uh, this this new way of being human that Jesus portrays here uh, and help us to live differently because of our uh, conversation with you in prayer today around your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When our friend Fred Harrell, uh, pastor of City Church San Francisco, was with us earlier in the season of Epiphany, he spoke on Matthew's Beatitudes in a message entitled, A New Way of Being Human. This morning we have Luke's version of the Beatitudes, not as long as Matthew's, and and the emphasis tilts here in Luke towards the embodied situation that people find themselves in. The embodied situation that people find themselves in. And that's why I'm grateful for the dovetail this morning with the first lesson being about the resurrection of the body. And for Caleb's remarks on that. The resurrection of the body is is of central importance for so many reasons in our faith But one central reason why it's so important is because it's a commentary on and and it's a confession of what God has already started to do in this embodied life. Our embodied situation now is different. The course of human history is different because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. More about that later. Um... 
But, but in Luke's version here, uh, we have Jesus tilting his remarks towards, as I just said, the embodied situation that people find themselves in. Namely, and I'm going to use this word to sort of you know, summarize all the people I think that, Luke ha- that Jesus here in Luke has in mind. Uh, namely, the downtrodden. Those who are downtrodden in life. Now, the, the contrast here can, can be seen between Matthew's version and Luke's version uh, most clearly in, in what Jesus says about the poor. In Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, he says, blessed are the poor, full stop. Thus, tilting the focus towards, as I said before, our embodied lives within the context of communities where, in this instance, what Jesus is talking about is not so different than what we have today, where we have the poor in the context of communities where intergenerational poverty traps people in seemingly hopeless situations. Now, incidentally, in a quick aside here, we shouldn't be looking for contradictions here between Jesus and Matthew and Jesus and Luke. It's rather the case that Jesus says similar things in different contexts and tilts his message to underline certain aspects of the good news he is proclaiming and performing in his mission. For Luke, there is an emphasis on the poor right out of the gate. When Luke introduces us to Jesus' public ministry, uh, he provides us with a vignette of Jesus in the temple. It comes a couple of chapters before where we are this morning. This is the passage I'm referring to, and this is from the fourth chapter of Luke. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And on the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he read this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, Then he began to say to them, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has in view here the actual lives, the physical lives, the physical existence of people who are downtrodden. And he uses this passage that we just read from Isaiah. He uses this passage to frame his mission. And the passage is a glance towards Israel's jubilee year. Israel's jubilee year that came along every 49 years when debts were supposed to be forgiven and slaves freed. And a giant reset button was supposed to be pressed to ensure that those who had amassed power and land had to let go of some of their power for the sake of the powerless. The passage in Isaiah that Jesus reads here surely does envision a new way 
of being human. And, and Jesus uses Isaiah's words here to say that his mission will begin to bring about a new way of being human for God's people. A way of being human that takes into account, among so many other things, the actual physical needs of the poor. The needs of the oppressed, the marginalized, for whatever reason they're marginalized, and the downtrodden. The gospel that Jesus proclaims and performs is the power of the resurrection let loose in this fallen world that brings about a new community. As one person has put it, the gospel brings forth a new community wherein the harsh demands of quid pro quo are broken and healthy social relationships are created to take their place relationships that depend on generous hospitality. In this new community, instead of scorekeeping, quid pro quo, large acts of forgiveness are in order and radical generosity towards all, especially the poor. Now, Jesus is not saying that this will happen all at once. But the community of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, us, the church, we are the laboratory where all of this does actually begin, this new way of being with each other in the midst of a fallen world that longs for redemption. The church offers hope, and judgment to the world. A judgment that the status quo must not be allowed to stand and hope that a different way of life is actually made possible by following Christ's reign and leadership in faith and repentance. This is the side of Jesus that Luke wants us to see early on in his gospel the Jesus who is concerned that his good news must be seen as simultaneously comfort and hope for the poor and also a redemptive judgment upon those who would exploit them actively or ignore them passively. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, these aren't just words of comfort. This is not like a hallmark card, okay? This is not like a sympathy message. Blessed are you, it will be okay, right? When Jesus says blessed are the poor, you know, the the best way I think to get at how to translate this tricky word that, that is translated blessed is, you know, sometimes it's translated happy are you. Uh, sometimes the Aussie phrase has been suggested uh, as the best way to understand uh, blessed, good on ya. Good on you. How is it good on you if you're poor and you're not actually in a situation or in a network of relationships that actually change your circumstances? It's not. It's like an empty hallmark message. Jesus envisions this new community where radical acts of generosity become commonplace, where people organize their lives in a way that is generous towards those who have less than they do. They're not just words of comfort, 
but words of challenge. And who are they words of challenge to? They're words of challenge to people like me, who somehow seem to be able to manage to, you know, spend $7 on a coffee drink. They're words of challenge. I mean, we often, I mean, my point here, tongue in cheek, but actually, truly, is that so many of us don't regard ourselves as rich or wealthy or powerful, but when we look around, we realize, in fact, that we are people who have means, and we are people who um, can be generous. Anyway, they're, they're words of challenge to the powerful. They're exhortations to find a way to lift up the weak. They're exhortations for us to find a way to go out to the margins and call those people in the margins in and welcome them into our community. The circumstances of the poor begin to change when those who have power come to recognize by the grace of God that power is meant to bless those who don't have it. Power is meant to bless those who don't have it. Power is not meant to enable the powerful to amass more of it for their own benefit. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. This is a good place to note something that I think is often misunderstood about Jesus's and the New Testament in general warnings and judgments upon the rich and the powerful. These warnings to the rich and the powerful, this is not a demonization of them by Jesus. And it's not a forbidding of the accumulation of wealth per se. The book of Acts, for example, has examples of of, of wealthy merchants whose wealth is put to use for the sake of the mission of the apostles, and it certainly does not seem to be that they're meant to quit being wealthy in the process. They're warnings to the powerful, and this is why I called it a redemptive judgment upon the powerful a couple of minutes ago. These are warnings, these woes that come later in the reading this morning, for instance. These are warnings to the powerful, and they're meant to be warnings that are heeded so that the gospel can free people from being enslaved to wealth and materialism and bring them into a new understanding of what their wealth and power is for. The blessings they have are meant to bless the poor and empower the church to do its work. Now, once in a while... And I search for examples here. And the first one that came to mind, an example that I got to see up close and personal, when I was working for Circle Urban Ministries in the Austin neighborhood, this was back in 1990 and 1991, a ministry that was committed and still is to the poor, and to racial reconciliation. I will forever remember a man. He was a volunteer from somewhere in Arkansas. And he was a white gentleman. 
He came up to me in tears while he was working with some African Americans in the community. They were working together on a, on a rehab project of a building. And he came up to me with these tears in his eyes. And he said to me, I never knew I was a racist until I started working on this project with these black sisters and brothers. Their kindness and love towards me has been used by God to uncover my hidden sin. This he said with tears streaming down his face. I will never be the same again, he said. Working with the marginalized freed this man of something that he didn't even know he needed to be freed from. When God confronts the powerful with woes and this sort of thing, this is God's compassion working out towards them to keep them from dehumanizing themselves by imagining that power is to make them more powerful and that wealth should just be amassed without regard to those who have less than they do. The gospel enables us to have a renewed vision and redeemed instincts and gives us the capacity and the imagination as the people of God to seek out those who are marginalized to find a way to give them relief. A community being renewed by Christ renewed in Christ into a new way of being human, enables those who have power and success in the eyes of the world to learn to embrace their own weaknesses and vulnerabilities that pop up profoundly, guess what? (laughs) When we serve the weak and the marginalized and learn to see those who sometimes can be hard for society to look upon, learn to see them as lovely people, full of the dignity and beauty that belong to all divine image bearers. I'd go so far as saying that one of the reasons we are often hesitant to draw near to the weak, the marginalized, the poor, what have you, is because those of us who aren't in that particular category in the eyes of the world, so to speak, we can be embarrassed by it. But I think what's really going on is we're really afraid. We're afraid of our own weaknesses, our own vulnerabilities. And being around people who can't help but show weakness and vulnerability makes you suddenly think about your own. And sometimes that is not a welcome thought. Last week, when I was doing the greeting, I had trouble keeping it together because I'd been gone for two weeks and uh, taking care of my elderly parents in Florida. And the emotion of being back in this community snuck up on me and I just kind of lost it. And I was saying to some of my colleagues this week in our staff meeting, whatever you do, when I come back from a trip like that, don't let me give a welcome because I'm going to lose it. 
And the response was, raw and vulnerable is okay. Well, for so many of us, raw and vulnerable is not okay. It's just not. And that's one of the, the redemptive things that comes to those who have come to see a struggle with their power they hadn't seen before, a struggle with materialism they hadn't seen before. So when they get out and go to the margins and help people who have less than they do, suddenly they see vulnerabilities and weaknesses in themselves that they need to claim and they own and ask God to work with them, work on. It's healing to draw near to someone who's not like you. Particularly if they're not like you and everyone else like you tends to want to ignore them at best or even persecute them at worst. My time working in the Austin neighborhood that I referred to earlier, my time there reframed my life. It truly did. But it did not make me perfect in my thoughts and actions around issues related to race. For that, I need the journey. The journey of ongoing learning at the feet of Christ, faith and repentance. For that, I need the ongoing work of the gospel in my life. My point of starting to wind it down here in this way is that we won't be able to participate fully in this new community, this new way of being human that Jesus envisions here in the reading this morning from Luke 6. We won't be able to do that by remaining comfortable and safe. We'll only be able to do that by learning to build community with people who are profoundly different from us. Recently, I would say, I think that the most growth for me lately has been with my friends who are Christian and gay, helping me to understand the hurt and the pain that they have suffered because of me and people like me and because of what I represent as a straight, white, male, relatively conservative minister whose sins of omission with regard to matters related to the LGBT community are many, I'm sure. And that now in this season of my life, I'm only just beginning to sort out with their help and, of course, the indispensable help of the Spirit of Christ at work in my life. It should be deeply concerning to us that the church, particularly in the United States, often transfers upon God the macho character traits of a white alpha male. 
we should be concerned, first of all, because it's theological error. God transcends gender. But also because Jesus reveals God not in self-serving power, but in self-giving love that manifests, we're talking about the season of Epiphany, that manifests as weakness and vulnerability. When God in Christ is at work in the world, in our embodied communities, the prophet says that he will have no form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. In short, Jesus did not look like a winner. Jesus looked like the marginalized. And Jesus is with the marginalized. And this is why it's a non-negotiable for followers of Jesus to go out to the margins and proclaim good news to the marginalized and then to be that good news at the same time by extending unconditional welcome. May God grant us at Grace Chicago Church the grace and mercy to be good news for the downtrodden. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.